0: Welcome to the latest edition of the St. Mark's Podcast, where we discuss all aspects of, of colorectal disease. My name is Peter McDonald. and I'm one of the surgeons at St. Mark's. And um, this today is going to be a very special edition with uh, our, one of our emeritus professors, Professor John Northover, back to see us, who retired from St. Mark's a e- few years ago now, but has maintained his interest in all things colorectal. And today we're going to talk about the history of rectal cancer surgery uh welcome john
1: nice to be here
0: good and you, you were saying in, earlier to me that you thought the best way to deal with this complex subject is to look at the hurdles that surgeons and doctors have overcome patients have overcome in that uh, in the 150 years or 200 years that this has been going on um, what did you mean
1: exactly by that when you were talking about hurdles Well, we as surgeons take a lot for granted. When we meet a patient with rectal cancer these days, although it's a big deal to treat it, it's nevertheless routine. And it's done all over the world. Thousands of patients are treated. And it's very easy to forget that it took hundreds of years to get to where we are today. Uh, And there's a whole series of hurdles that surgeons um, and other doctors had to get over before we get to where we are today, treating this as a routine disease. We've recently celebrated man's arrival on the moon 50 years ago. In fact, I was in Houston the day they landed, which is a rather wonderful thing to be able to remember. Um, And the moon was a great hurdle to get to. Um, And Mars is a great hurdle to get to. Goodness knows when that will happen. But the places that men had to get to, and of course it was only men back then, um, the hurdles were getting into the abdomen, forbidden territory, into the chest and into the head. And each of those had to be um, secured and managed before routine treatment of all the diseases that we can now treat surgically uh, could indeed be treated and have some prospect of uh, not only curing the patient, but not killing them through the treatment.
0: Because for many years it was thought that going into the abdomen or the peritoneum was almost a death sentence, wasn't it? That, that was almost- well, it was
1: a death sentence. Um, if, we, if we remember that there was a time um, not yet 200 years ago when you couldn't go into the abdomen with the patient asleep. And the idea of operating on a conscious patient and going into their abdomen... Um, is really quite, uh, quite something, and yet now it is routine.
0: But- let's, let's go back a step and think about diagnosis, because that was, I mean, to us it's relatively straightforward now. We have these amazing machines which can look in, into the patient while we, you know, and we can go through it them while we sit with them in the clinic. But, you know, 200 years ago it wasn't like that at all. First of all, they had the problem of how do they make a diagnosis uh, of a condition such as rectal cancer?
1: Well, the first thing, of, uh, of course, was to recognise the symptoms. And we can go back to the 14th century, I think, and at that stage, the symptoms of, um, of bowel cancer were first recognised. Um, but that's all there was initially. I dare say, although I haven't read that it occurred, surgeons would have put their fingers into the bottom of patients with the symptoms that were, in fact, due to rectal cancer. But that was the only way of... Um, identifying a cancer, and only cancers within reach of the finger could be reached. The upper rectum, wasn't; uh, um, uh, surgeons couldn't uh, recognise tumours there, and the colon, of course, was just impossible to diagnose. The only way that surgeons and um, other doctors would have known that somebody had a high rectal cancer or a colon cancer was to carry out a post-mortem when they died of their disease. So it was only the lower rectum uh, that could be approached simply using the surgeon's finger.
0: And a lot of these rectal cancers presented um, as obstruction, didn't they? And eventually required what became known as the lumbar colostomy, which started sort of mid-18th century, maybe lasted 100 years as the standard operation for for this condition. Yes.
1: Um, Well, we don't think of um, rectal cancer as a tumour that obstructs these days. Because patients have it treated before it can obstruct. There are parts of the world I visited where patients do obstruct. Um, But uh, in in the Western world, we don't think of it as a tumour that does that. Lots of other symptoms, but not that. Um, And as you say, back in the 1700s, um, surgeons did try to alleviate obstruction of the rectum by approaching the colon from behind they couldn't go into the abdomen in awake patients. So they made an incision in the lumbar area, the loin, and somehow magically found the sigmoid colon and brought it out as a lumbar colostomy.
0: It must have been a messy business and it must have been very difficult to manage afterwards considering they have no, no stoma bags and all the rest of it. it. Must have been a palliative thing, which I'm not sure was better than the condition that they were trying to treat.
1: Well, at least the patient wasn't going to die of obstruction if they had a stoma above the level of the tumour. So I suppose that's one thing you can say for it.
0: So when did they first start thinking, let, let's excise these tumours, let Let's and how did they go about that? If they couldn't go into the abdomen like we would
1: do today, how did they go about that? Well, we're going back to the um, early 1800s to think about that. Having found a tumour in the low rectum by sticking a finger in the bottom, um, Initially, they would remove the tumour simply by uh, cutting around the anus and going up into the pelvis um, until they were above the level of the cancer and then simply transecting the rectum. That was the end of the operation.
0: Right, and then having a colostomy upstream?
1: No. Um, A lot of of patients were treated simply by having uh, the lower part of the, the rectum removed. We absolutely know that is the case. Um... Uh, obviously, colostomy had been developed, as we've said, in the, um, in the 1700s. But um, most patients simply had uh, resection of the lower part of the rectum uh, with feces coming out through the perineum, perineal colostomy, in effect. So
0: they'd have no control and it would be pretty miserable.
1: It'd be absolutely horrendous. And then... I, think, I think we can imagine how dreadful it would be. Feces pouring out of a wound in your bottom sepsis occurring, uh, almost universally, one assumes. And, of course, during the operation, as we still know today, if you're doing uh, a bottom end of an abdominoperineal excision, you can get pretty severe bleeding. The view will have been uh, impossible, particularly in the awake patient.
0: And the recurrence rate was almost almost inevitable.
1: I I think that is the case. Mm. And surgeons uh, recorded that the treatment was so fraught with danger... Um, including uh, almost universal recurrence, that they said that uh, they couldn't really understand why surgeons were doing this. The president of the Royal College of Surgeons said that um, in around about 1870. And although he emphasised that he wanted surgeons to feel that they should be developing new ways of treating diseases, he reflected that surgeons and patients Um, must have seen the disease as being worse than the treatment, which, as we've just said, was horrendous in terms of the complications.
0: But then later on came an effort to really try and uh, improve this with the Kraski approach, for example, to rectal cancer, where by then colostomies uh, were being done and uh, attempt to remove these rectal tumours from behind, still only from behind, um, was being done for, you know, for some years. That became the
1: standard yeah. approach. It's worth remembering that, as we use the term anterior resection, there must have been something called a posterior resection, and this is what you've just alluded to. Um, surgeons trying to avoid taking out the anus and producing all the symptoms that go with that um, looked at ways of getting into the pelvis from behind, So Kraski was one, uh, he he made a so-called parasacral incision. He would uh, cut up next to the edge of the sacrum, um, separate the gluteal muscles from the sacrum, and get into the back of uh, the pelvis, which, of course, very conveniently, was where the rectum lived and lives. Um, And initially, I think the first case, in fact... um, the patient had um, an abscess in the pelvis um, and it was leaking out through um, a fistula and the surgeon went in to deal with this and discovered that this was a rectal cancer and not just uh, sepsis and he tried to remove a segment of rectum. We're going back into the 1700s and then later it was done electively um, opening the pelvis from behind, taking out a piece of tumour Uh, Sorry, a piece of rectum with the tumour in it, hopefully with a colostomy upstream, but that wasn't universal, as I said just now, um, and trying to join the ends together. And in those early days, the surgeons did as limited a resection as they could because they knew that if they tried to make an anastomosis and uh, there was too big uh, uh, um, a defect in in terms of the length of rectum removed, it was going to go pop the patient would have an anastomotic leak um, and um, stand a very good chance of getting sepsis related to that and dying of post-operative sepsis.
0: And at St. Mark's, Percy Lockhart Mummery, one of the surgeons at the uh, early in the early 20th century, uh, developed a method which he thought would become standard, but it didn't, uh, which was a modification of all that sort of work, wasn't it?
1: Well... Um, We at St Mark's tend to think of Lockhart Mummery as having developed that. In fact, he he wasn't the first surgeon to remove the lower part of the rectum with a colostomy upstream, but he was very much an advocate of it. Um, So he would make a colostomy, he'd bring out a loop um, about 10 days before he was going to do the resection. Um, Hopefully that would all settle into place and the patient would still be alive. And then he would go in and do... Um, a non-radical excision by cutting around the anus and then burrowing up in the pelvis in a completely non-oncologically conscious way and taking it out. Um, And very interestingly, um, Ernest Miles trained at St Mark's um, and he saw this operation um, before... Uh, Percy Lockhart Mummery joined the staff in 1904. So it was happening uh, back into the 18th century. Uh, sorry, the 19th century. Um, and he wasn't impressed with it. And we'll talk about uh, what he did to try and overcome the deficiencies of so-called perineal excision in a minute. Um, but I'm just going to mention um, that Ernest Miles tried to join the staff of St Mark's. He was interviewed in 1899. Um, and uh, what one can only say... Uh, was a dilettante surgeon was appointed instead of him, and that surgeon, after about ten years, um, was so deeply into his practice uh, amongst the rich in the West End that he left St Mark's. So there was this extraordinary opportunity, in retrospect, to have had Ernest Miles on the staff at St Mark's, and yet he ended up. At as a smart surgeon would say, ended up at the Gordon Hospital, which was Sir Mark's great rival hospital. And it was there that he did all the great work that uh, we all know about today.
0: The, the, the other The other hurdles that we've had to overcome to get safe rectal cancer surgery um, as a standard, uh, we've talked about diagnosis and access, uh, but there are other things that come along with us which have made it possible.
1: Yeah, well, as I said at the outset, there's so much we take for granted today. We almost don't even think of it as hurdles, but they had to be dealt with. They had to be overcome. And we can go back uh, to a time when surgeons were able to remove rectal tumours from below um, and to make stomas. But th- this was on awake patients. <laughs> and anaesthesia was developed in the um 1840s and 1850s and it was all very hazardous patients died of having an anaesthetic uh, using chloroform and ether but nevertheless it did mean that some patients could be put to sleep successfully um, and be woken up afterwards a bit like going to the moon and coming back Um, so anaesthesia was an extraordinary step forward um, and allowed surgeons to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do in patients who were awake
0: Yep, and then that anaesthesia took gen, general anaesthetic forms, but also local anaesthetic uh, techniques were developed soon after that, and they became helpful. Epidurals, spinals, or spinals, really, rather than epidurals, were, was all, were also well, added. That, yeah, anyway. that was
1: some time later. But the, the great step was to have a patient who was asleep um, and that was such an enormous step forward. Um, thinking back, it's it's extraordinary, the concept of being able to give a patient some medication and have them go to sleep and stay asleep while the surgeon did horrendous things. So that was, that was a massive step forward. Right. And then a few years after that, of course, along came uh, Lister and developed antisepsis to try and prevent the infections that uh, occurred so frequently in surgery. Uh, another extraordinary step forward. Um, But one enormous step that needed to be taken in order to be able to identify positively that a cancer was in the rectum, um, rather than just using the finger, was again something we take for granted, and that was the development um, in the very early part of the 20th century of the sigmoidoscope. Um, And the name says what it is they could get up into the sigmoid colon which meant that the upper rectal tumors could be found and some sigmoid tumors could be found so the surgeons knew if if they got a patient with the right symptoms but they couldn't identify the tumor with their finger um, they could carry out dangerous surgery uh, in anticipation that they might be able to cure the patient i mean imagine how dreadful uh, it must have been and it will have occurred that you've got a patient with symptoms, you can't identify that the tumour is there, you carry out a dangerous operation, and there ain't a cancer there. Yeah.
0: So the sigmoidoscopy was first developed in about
1: 1903? Three, yes. Uh, that, that was when uh, Lockhart Mummery, who wasn't even a consultant at St Mark's at that stage, described the uh, rigid sigmoidoscope. And um, we, we've got etchings of, uh, of the scope which looks exactly like the one that so many of us have used um, since. Um, And the way it was lit was a long, um, thin metal probe with a tiny bulb at the end, and this had to be put in through the proximal end of the scope, reaching all the way up to the uh, far end where uh, you were trying to see pathology. Um, These days, of course, the light is at the proximal end and is strong enough... Um, to illuminate the lumen of the rectum. But back then, it was very difficult. So a major
0: development there. And then we have other major developments, such as transfusion and uh, antibiotics, which followed antiseptis, Mm. which uh, which helped uh, as well to overcome some of these great difficulties of sepsis, which follows these operations.
1: Yeah. Um, Perhaps one other thing worth mentioning uh, in chronological terms is the development of radiology. Um, Now, initially, X-rays were very crude. You could see bones, but you couldn't see soft tissues, and you certainly couldn't see the bowel. Um, But uh, some bright spark decided that if you put a fluid into the rectum uh, that was uh, radio-opaque, that you'd be able to see uh, pathology within the bowel. Um, And that began in the 1930s, and it meant that tumours in the upper rectum, which could also, of course, be seen with a sigmoidoscope, uh, but also, and importantly, tumours in the colon could be seen, all the way round to, um, to the cecum. Um, and that was the beginning of trying to treat colon cancer as well as rectal cancer. But you you mentioned, of course, um, transfusion and antibiotics. Well, initially, transfusion uh, was, was just simple fluids, crystalloids, um, and that was occurring way back into the 20th century, Um, and helped to deal with so-called surgical shock. Just having a patient asleep for a long time was enough to cause surgical shock. They didn't have to be bleeding. Um, And transfusion of simple fluids uh, helped to deal with that. And then, round about 1940, blood transfusion, which had been tried, um, but again had killed people because of uh, all the problems we can can think of, Um, when blood groups were understood, you could more safely transfused patients. So that was beginning to deal with that other enormous hurdle of bleeding. And then in um, around about 1950, a little bit before that, the development of antibiotics that could be used to try and prevent sepsis or to treat sepsis uh, came along. In fact, the first randomised trial ever was looking at streptomycin in the treatment of um, tuberculosis but over the next couple of decades, other antibiotics developed which surgeons could use.
0: Yeah, and so that, in a sense, put, put the last uh, hurdle in, We overcome the last hurdle uh, of, of, the, of that era. Let's go back to uh, Ernest Miles and um, talk about his contribution. We've seen Lockhart Mummery doing the perineal excision, uh, and um, then Miles didn't, wasn't very impressed by this, but when he came up with his idea of the abdominal perineal excision of the rectum, um, there, were, there were plenty who weren't very impressed with that because his mortality rate was shockingly high in that first series. Well,
1: the, the earliest recorded uh, mortality rate for him um, was 42%. A visiting American surgeon uh, who was knocking around Europe actually recorded that that was his mortality. But he was trying to balance cure... With all the uh, shortcomings of surgery. And he was extremely unimpressed with uh, perineal excision. He'd learned how to do it at St Mark's. He was doing it at the Gordon Hospital in the first decade of the century. And all his patients, or almost all his patients, would develop recurrence. And in fact, um, he published a series, uh, he mentions it in his first description of um, abdominal perineal perone- ex- uh, excision. Um, in about 35 patients, as I recall, in whom he performed a perineal excision, varying the technique to try to decrease the recurrence rate, nevertheless, the vast majority of those people developed recurrent disease and, of course, went on to die of it. So he took the decision that this simply wasn't the way forward. He did postmortems on all of his patients who died. He, personally did the post-mortems, um, and he observed that um, the recurrences that were occurring before the patients died was mainly around the sigmoid colon, um, and he um, thought that this was almost certainly lymphatic disease, disease in the lymph nodes around the sigmoid colon, and of course we know um, that that was around the upper part of the inferior mesenteric artery. So he decided That he was going to deal with this problem of everybody, pretty much everybody getting recurrent disease by doing something um, uh, audacious. And the audacious thing he did was to go into the abdomen, uh, forbidden space for surgeons. I mean, a a few people were carrying out gastric surgery and other forms of abdominal surgery. Um, But as far as rectal cancer was concerned, pretty much nobody was trying to go into the abdomen. And so he developed Abdominoperineal Excision of the Rectum and published that seminal paper in 1908. And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: Yes, and it's all, um, for a a long while, um, that operation became standard. Once he'd been able to show in his second series a a lower mortality, people started taking it up uh, and it became the standard operation for uh, 30, 40 years before the next
1: phase where, where, we de- where, where anterior section was developed. Well, I think it's worth just thinking about how abdominoperineal perineal excision evolved over a period. Um, Ernest Miles had described the operation. It was a truly oncological um, procedure in which he removed the lymphatic field as well as the rectum. So he was consciously doing something in which he was trying to cure patients by doing an operation that today we would call a radical resection or excision. Um, And over the next 30 years, the mortality began to improve. It it went from 40 to 30 to 20. And at the beginning of the 1930s, it was down into the tens. It was below uh, 10. Um, And surgeons who previously had criticised the operation um, began to be a bit more sympathetic towards it. But there had been this extraordinary public battle between Lockhart Mummery um, and his nemesis, Ernest Miles. Um, Lockhart Mummery saying, you, you know, you kill all your patients, uh, Miles reposting that, well, at least I cure a few, yes. uh, making the point that um, the perineal excision that uh, Lockhart Mummery continued with until he retired in 1934, yeah. Um, so that battle continued, and many, many surgeons uh, stayed with Lockhart Mummery because they preferred uh, to have patients get recurrence rather than kill them at their own hand at yeah. surgery. So,
0: John, that was a battle royal in London over rectal cancer, and there have been plenty of other debates in this subject uh, more recently, and we're going to hear them. Some of those in the in the next episode. But thank you very much for giving us your special take on rectal cancer surgery and those huge hurdles that surgeons and physicians and others and anaesthetists have had to overcome to at least get to this point where abdominal excision of the rectum was becoming the standard uh, and then we'll take the story on from there in the next episode. Thank you very much John.
1: Pleasure. <laughs>